It was a book launch that triggered a political firestorm. On Sunday, the New York Times published an opinion essay by the authors of The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, describing some of their findings from a 10-month investigation into the sexual misconduct allegations against the now Supreme Court Justice. The authors mentioned a previously unreported allegation of Kavanaugh as a young Yale University freshman exposing himself while his penis was thrust into the face of a female co-ed. And the authors wrote they had found new corroboration for a similar incident involving yet another Yale student. Immediately, Washington went wild. Six Democratic presidential candidates called for Kavanaugh's impeachment. But how solid were these new allegations? After the piece was published, the New York Times read an editor's note, pointing out that a crucial piece of information from the book had been left out, that the alleged victim of the new allegation doesn't remember the incident at all. Did the authors overstate what they had actually uncovered? And did the New York Times screw up, handing a huge gift to President Trump and his Senate Republican allies? We'll talk to the authors of the book, New York Times reporters Robin Pogrubin and Kate Kelly, on this special episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Skullduggery Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. We now have with us the two New York Times reporters in the middle of quite the political and media maelstrom, Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly, the authors of the new book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. Robin, Kate, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. So quite the uh, book launch you folks have had, starting with the uh, New York Times piece that ran on Sunday, but also quite the controversy. So let's start right there. One of the things that got people worked up in your piece in The Times was that you had uncovered a previously unreported story about Brett Kavanaugh in his freshman year at Yale, in which a classmate, Max Steyer, has said he saw Kavanaugh with his pants down at a drunken dorm party where friends pushed his penis into the hands of a female student. Max Steyer did not talk to you about this, correct? You heard it from correct. others. And by the um, way, this was a, just to make it clear, this is a previously unreported incident, yeah, previously right? Previously unreported, so, and right. as to because whether there Max was a, spoke right. to us or not, we're really not. We're sort of letting the book speak for itself in terms of our sources. Okay. No indication that he's quoted, certainly on the record. Then in the book, you report that the woman who was the alleged victim of this incident did not agree to be interviewed, but told several of her friends that she does not recall the incident, but that was not in the Times opinion piece, which I think most people agree was a grievous omission. How did this happen? Well, we operate as a team at the Times, so there were errors in the process. We had this essay that we had adapted from our own book. The point of the essay was to focus on Deborah Ramirez, who I'm sure we'll talk about more, but briefly, she was a classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's at Yale. She had an experience their freshman year where she alleges that Kavanaugh uh, exposed himself to her and caused her to inadvertently touch his penis during a drunken dorm party. 
and that for a variety of reasons, that was a very traumatic experience. So the bulk of that essay, the 2,000 words or so, was about Ramirez and our attempt to go deeper into that account and give you many more facts around it. Robin, who kind of led that reporting, found more corroboration for it um, and to tell that in a meaningful way. We thought that the new, as yet unreported, allegation was germane because it was a similar situation. And so we included a brief mention of it, although it was not intended to be the focus of the article. And in the process, this significant line about the woman not remembering and not talking about it was removed inadvertently, really. It was an oversight. Removed by whom? Well, I don't want to get into who did what, because the fact is we do operate as a team, and it was just a process error. But... Obviously, it was an oversight. We corrected it as soon as we could, added the information in. There's an editor's note explaining that we regret this. It's unfortunate. And just speaking for Robin and myself, there's no attempt to conceal information from our readers. It's all in the book. It's always all been in the book. So to us, the essay was a a way to say, hey, there's a lot of interesting new facts and reporting in this book. Please take a sample of it. But for fuller context, read the book. So in our minds, we had already sort of disseminated it to the public in a different forum, and perhaps our radar wasn't as up as it should have been. But you understand why people have focused on this, because that's immediately what leapt out to people. Aha, a new allegation Mm -hmm. against Brett Kavanaugh. So the fact that the presumed victim doesn't recall it is a significant piece of information. But let's talk about Max Steyer for a moment, because it's unclear to me how he communicated what it is he saw, what he did see. Were there others there? Where? When? Are there others who were at the same drunken dorm party? Was Max Steyer drinking himself? There are all sorts of questions that we don't have answers to in either the opinion piece or the book. Right. So this, I mean, we decided, you know, clearly the reason that this is not the focus of the piece is that we decided to highlight the Deborah Ramirez experience in this excerpt and not the Max Steyer one. And as far as the Max Steyer one is concerned, our understanding of his thought process involving these allegations was that he brought them to the appropriate authorities when they would have been relevant to evaluating Kavanaugh's sort of whether he was equipped for the court. And he brought them to senators, and he is a Washington insider. He runs a bipartisan organization. He seems to have had access to the people who were making the decisions. How did he bring them to the senators? Did he do it in writing? I can't say that I know that, um, and one way or the other. But I do know that they came to their attention, and we know that Coons is now attesting to the fact that it came to his attention, Senator Coons. He also brought it to the attention of the FBI and made a clear effort to do that in the fact-finding process. Let me add also quickly, there was a letter that Christine Blasey Ford's lawyers prepared for the FBI with potential leads and people to interview, much as the one that Ramirez's lawyers prepared with probably, uh, it doesn't name every single person, but suggesting a score, if not scores of other people to talk Mm -hmm. to. And one of those people was this woman in this third allegation, and it describes the contours of the incident. So back in that time, there was documentary evidence as well, which was yet another thing we consulted. Let me just go back to Mike's question about the sort of vagueness of the incident. Clearly, you guys spent so much time trying to corroborate what Deborah Ramirez said happened to her. This would be powerful new evidence. So what was your process to try to corroborate this episode, which would have then uh, helped corroborate what happened to Deborah Ramirez? We did go to great lengths. And I mean, what's interesting is that the degree to which the Ramirez story was making the rounds of the Senate during the confirmation hearings, this one was too. Not just because of Max Steyer coming forward, but because it was in the wind that there was another incident involving another person. I mean, with all of these cases, this is 36 years ago, people are somewhat trying to reconstruct events. I mean, what we did know for certain was this was another dorm party where a lot of drinking was taking place freshman year. It was the same year. And it happened to happen to the victim involved was actually a close friend of Deborah Ramirez. So there was also some kind of confluence there. 
And, you know, with all of these things, we are going as deep as we can in trying to to verify them for sure. I mean, what was different about this case is that you have a person who says he witnessed something, which was actually quite powerful in and of itself because you don't have that with Blasey Ford and with Ramirez. And the other thing I'd point out to your point, Mike, is that, yes, of course, this is an allegation that people have seized upon and it's understandable why. But it also speaks to this larger point of the book and why we revisited these events, which is that people have sort of seized on certain aspects of this story and kind of magnified them to serve their own purposes in terms of, you know, telling one kind of narrative or another. Well, we'll get into well, Leland Kaiser uh, yeah. in a little bit because I think that goes exactly well, to that Well, that's what's point. happened here. Right. But just to be clear, you don't know when Steyer says he saw this incident. Freshman year. That's all we know. You know where? A dorm party in the same dorm as the Deborah Ramirez Lawrence one Hall. occurred, which is Lawrence Hall, which is on old campus, which is where the freshmen live. It's where I lived. I was in Brett Kavanaugh's class at Yale freshman year. He and I were two doors down from each other. Did Do you know anybody else who was at the same no, dorm party? We don't. And, you know, and it's and it's just the way that it's been hard to corroborate, you know, what happened in the room with Deborah Ramirez. So just look, a lot of people were jumping on you guys and The Times on Sunday saying, why wasn't this a news story? But I'm just playing your editor for a moment. You've got an accuser who you haven't spoken to, a vague allegation. You don't know where it when exactly it happened and who was there. The only name you have is the alleged victim who told several of her friends, more than two, that she doesn't even remember this. You couldn't have gotten that as a news story into well, the New to, York to Times, fair, could you have? Th- these are allegations. But Would you have written it, that as a news story Let me, in the New York let me Times? just address the premise of your question first, and then right. I'll take that. Okay. Uh, the allegations are that Brett Kavanaugh was a perpetrator, that this woman was the target of it, the victim, if you will. And we have a witness. We have names of all those three people. We had two sources describing to us the way in which Max Steyer took this to government officials last year. We had a letter written at that time by Christine Blasey Ford's lawyers naming the woman and describing the incident. And we also had general talk about it, not that that's adequate sourcing, but clearly it was in the wind, as Robin said, and we had these three different sources. Right. And and the we're not getting into who we interviewed unless they're quoted in the book. Right. But you can deduce that there are, generally speaking, other people that we talked to on background, and certainly we reached out to all the parties on that. So just to clear the air. No, I get that. Would this have right. cut it as a news story, to your yes. question? We had a long discussion with the leadership of the Times, including Dean Baquet, including other senior editors, about the book, which we gave everybody a copy of in Mm -hmm. the senior leadership and invited them to read it and see if they thought it was appropriate to run an excerpt. We all had sort of an iterative discussion. We talked about the different possibilities, and the feeling was this worked well as a Sunday review piece because everybody was drawn to this Ramirez material, and we wanted to be able to focus on that in a sort of nuanced way rather than turning it into a hard news story because the book is all about context and nuance. The Sunday review is frequently a place where you see author, Times reporter, authors display their stuff. Jim Poniewozik uh, just just did that. Right. So it was not an odd choice. It was a considered choice. I know. I, I get that. But the question was, would you have, did you propose and would you have written and would your editors have published a story as vague and as uncorroborated as what you have in the book. I think. I mean, I think that that's that is clearly it's a story. It's a it's a question for our editors. You know that, that the, the, their decision making to the degree we were part of those conversations. Yeah. I think that our takeaway, which I know you're going to discuss, is that there is a very f- sort of full picture here, which is you know what Brett was like as a youth and yeah. the kind of behavior he had and what has happened since. And we actually feel that what has happened since has been somewhat obscured by the focus on the incidents of his. What, what do you mean, what has happened since? In other words, in the last 36 years, what's he been like? His is there life. a pattern of behavior? Is yeah. this one of those Me Too people who right. is sort of a serial predator with right. a trail of women in his wake? I mean, what's you, the answer, our, to, well, what's you, the answer yeah. to that? Our finding is no. Right. Okay. But, our but it's finding, interesting. We, it, it we, is not. It is not. We corroborate these stories. Right. And we right. have, we, because of our reporting, we have a fuller picture of the kind of milieu he grew up in and that might have kind of allowed for these kinds of incidents to occur, which are basically ham-handed behavior that is, yes, objectionable by any measure. Do you have a sense of how 
he evolved as a person? We I do. Mean, was actually, there a yes. moment, Good when, a come to Jesus moment, so to speak, where he realized that the drinking was out of control or he needed to change his behavior? When was that? How you did know, that? What, that's exactly the kind of deep dive we did. And that what our reporting showed was kind of just looking at what kind of a person was he, particularly in college, having evolved out of high school, which was a kind of an all boys school. You kind of can imagine some of the antics there. There was a little a casual misogyny that we clearly report out in this thing where you're kind of talking about women in a disparaging way. I think, frankly, because, you know, when people aren't around women day to day, that kind of it lends itself to sort of this kind of sexualized behavior when you're when you aren't really treating women as peers and friends. And he goes to Yale. He, he kind of gets in with a, an athletic cohort, not to say that they are sort of by definition, athletes are misogynist, too. But there was a kind of a rowdy drinking culture, culture yeah. among them. He was an athlete, too. And that, you know, to some extent, it was all of a piece with a certain kind of behavior. He wasn't a ladies man. He wasn't really an operator. From By all accounts, he didn't really get the girls. Um, he even himself testified on national television that he was a virgin through college. So um, you see, uh, you kind of get a picture of someone who's kind of actually a little socially awkward and perhaps using alcohol as a social lubricant. And it has some ill effects. I mean, he he clearly, you know, used alcohol to excess. Our reporting shows that. But that, you know, what happens is maybe he just grows up and matures, as most people do. But he also sets his sights on the court and a legal career and starts to get serious. He gets serious about academics. He gets into Yale Law school. Once you're into Yale Law School, you got three years. You're suddenly immediately thinking about getting clerkships and what your future is going to bring. And you have to clean up your act when you know that, you know, any kind of evaluation you're going to have is going to ask if you smoked pot. So this is a guy who's no dummy and has played it very carefully ever since. And I think we've actually seen that throughout these confirmation hearings, that Robin, this is a very know, strategic did person. Did you know Brett Kavanaugh and Yale? I knew him to say hello. You know, I had my college roommates were varsity athletes and Brett was with a varsity athlete crowd. So we overlapped a little bit socially. You know, I questioned whether he would recognize me. But I mean, but at the time, did you have any? We weren't. No, it wasn't like we were friends. That kind of behavior. No. It was not. No, and I, ever, and I yeah. spoke to some of his friends who are close. I mean, the degree to which I went to Yale and was in his class certainly greased the wheels in terms of picking up the phone and talking to people who we know in common. Not to mention having access to the Yale alumni network. But you know, I also spoke to one athlete who was just like, you know, we get sort of they get uh, kind of pigeonholed, and there were expectations of what athletes were like at Yale that they didn't deserve to be there on the merits that they were there mm-hmm. because of athletics that they were going to be who they were associated with this fraternity Deke, a lot of them, which, you know, was clearly, a, you know, had a really bad reputation and that to some extent they're being painted with too broad a brush. And I think, you know, the, the drinking in and of itself, you guys, is, is normal youthful behavior, which, you know, can obviously maybe be regrettable and go too far. I mean, the way this became, you know, sort of relevant to these proceedings is that Brett was not candid about owning up to that kind of behavior in his past. And a lot of people then came out of the woodwork and said, you know, wait a minute, that's not the Brett we remember. Um, and so it became an issue of dissembling when, you know, I think if, arguably if he'd owned uh, owned it and said, you know, yeah, I did some things I'm not proud of, but, you know, I'm a different person now, this might have gone differently. Yeah. I mean, you do right. As reporters, we uncovered nothing to suggest that Kavanaugh has mistreated women in the years since. Actually, Mike, to the contrary, he's promoted women in a way that may be politically savvy, but was also seems quite real, so where he has a record of promoting women on the court. Given the politics of this, should that have been in your Times op-ed piece, that you've uncovered nothing that suggests that there's any pattern of misconduct here by Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, I think you can't put everything in one but it's relatively pre- but it's short piece. it's pretty relevant uh, conclusion well, that you draw from your Today reporting. we have an excerpt of the book in The Atlantic, and it's essentially a condensed version of the epilogue, which I believe is what you're quoting from. Right. And it talks about all of these issues uh, in a condensed way, but you know, what we did during the investigation, what sort of conclusions we were able to draw, where were the cases where we really couldn't draw a conclusion, what our sort of evidence showed us, does it Where, talk about Leland Kaiser? It um, does. It does how, talk about Leland Kaiser. Because I thought that was, you know, just on, you know, for people who are skeptical of the allegations, sure. I think that was pretty interesting reporting. I mean, not only does she say that she doesn't remember it, but she comes to believe that it didn't happen. And moreover, that she was, you have reporting that suggests she may have been pressured um, to change her story, to, change her, to be more favorable to Christine Blasey Ford. Sure. 
So shall we talk about that? Let's yeah. talk about so, it. So Leland Kaiser was the woman who was a friend of Christine, then Blasey's, in mm-hmm. high school. They were classmates together. They hung out a lot. They were part of a circle of very good friends at Holden Arms. So when Christine Blasey Ford told this account last year of what she recalled happening with Kavanaugh, she placed Leland Kaiser at the party that evening, although not in the room where the assault allegedly happened. Leland has said pretty consistently as a bottom line, she just does not recall this one way or another. But initially, last fall, when she was questioned by reporters, she said, Christine is my friend. I believe her. She then, over time, had to give testimony to the FBI as part of the extended background investigation in late September, early October. Initially, she sat down, said I assume that she didn't recall uh, what had happened, but asked, answered rather whatever questions they had about the background, their high school experience, and so on. In the meantime, there was a feeling among Ford's friends from that era that Leland was not doing enough. Why was she not saying more publicly about the nature of their friendship, what she remembered about the parties back in that day, if anything, uh, the fact that she dated Mark Judge, which is a fact that, you know, we talk about in the book. Who who would have been the only eyewitness to the alleged Alleged assault. assault. Right. Who, right. who, who indisputably friend. was right. Kavanaugh's good friend and who Christine places in the room. In the room. And, and s- I don't want to use them. the word involved, but, you right. know, witnessing this and ultimately actually putting a stop to it. So... Anyway, there was consternation among some of Ford's friends that Leland was not just being more forthcoming, not to make things up, but just to say, why isn't she providing more context? So she felt pressured by some of those people. And after feeling pressure to change her story, which I talk about in more detail in the book, I print some details of some text messages to that effect. She takes some time, looks at old photographs, searches her memory and feels like, you know what? Brett Kavanaugh's face is not familiar to me at all. And I am starting to doubt this whole account. And she calls the FBI and asks for a second meeting. And at that meeting, she talks about the pressure. She talks about how she doesn't have confidence in this story anymore. Because of there were some logistical issues, right? So there were a number of issues that caused her to doubt it. I think first and foremost was the fact that she didn't recognize Kavanaugh. She had this feeling like she'd actually never seen him before other than on TV. So that was number one. Number two, she felt like circumstantially the situation that Ford was describing seemed improbable. So Ford talked about a day in which she was swimming and diving at the Columbia Country Club and that at some point after that, she's still wearing her bathing suit. She ends up at this gathering of six teenagers with Leland and Kavanaugh and Judge and two other boys. And there's drinking and, you know, the rest of it. So Leland says, yes, I was a member of the Columbia Club, and I would go there from time to time. In fact, she was an informal sort of diving judge. Uh, Leland was a real jock. Back in high school, she played like six or eight varsity sports, and she would sometimes judge her friend's diving technique. So yes, she went there occasionally, but she was spending most of her time that summer at this other country club where she was golfing. So she thought to herself, it seems improbable to me that the party kind of generated from the Columbia Club, and then we went to this house. That's a fair point. And, you know, we talk about it in the book. That said, Ford now says in interviews with me that we should not assume that the party started at the Columbia Club. She started there and she thinks she probably got a ride from Leland to wherever they went, although she's not sure. But that maybe the arrangements were made some other way, perhaps by Leland and Mark talking together, establishing a place and that that's how it all came together. So Leland's point is totally fair, but I don't think it's a dispositive negation of the Ford account. No, but if anything, I mean, given, as you point out, there was no corroboration for anything Mm -hmm. in Christine Blasey Ford's account. Mm -hmm. Correct? I mean, you write that in the book. No, no, nothing contemporary. Nobody she told at the time. You know, nobody who supported her account who she said was there. And the closest was Leland Kaiser. That was her one friend. Well, let let me walk through it. And she now doubts that it ever happened. That struck both of us who covered this at the time as reasonably significant, that the one friend of Christine Blasey Ford now is telling you she's not sure this ever happened at all. We're not saying that it's insignificant, Michael. We okay. we, we give right. a significant ink to it. Right. I assume what you're quibbling with but not saying is yeah. that we tell you at the very end what we ultimately right. feel 
um, after doing all this research. We're not opining on whether or not right. Judge Kavanaugh should have been named to the court. We're not opining on the outcome. We feel like that's way above our what, pay grade. What, what did you make of the, the calls for Kavanaugh to be impeached based on your opinion piece? We thought comments? it was a rush to judgment. I mean, these candidates have not read the book. Almost nobody's read the book. You're probably one of the few people right now. It's <laughs> it's literally on sale well, today. What did, what did you folks think? Did you think that you had uncovered information that would justify impeaching Brett Kavanaugh? You know, we really kind of decided, we wrestled with this quite a lot, obviously. About whether your reporting would justify impeachment? Not impeachment. Did you even think that you had anything that would we just go felt to like We lengths? just felt like everyone left this process and this experience unsatisfied and feeling like it was unfinished. And the degree to which we could go back at this stuff with the benefit of more time right. and effort and try to kind of just, you know, try to finish some of the stuff that got started, try to go back at this FBI investigation, which everyone felt was kind of rushed and incomplete, and, and to try to sort of like kind of follow some of those strains and see where they led. Um, and I think that ultimately what we determined is that, you know, you can put you all you can do is put every fact out there that you find. And the conclusions are, are not up to us. Do you think the, the FBI investigation, which lasted a week mm -hmm. and was very kind of circumscribed, circumscribed do you think that that was a sort of travesty of justice? I mean, I, I think two things. I mean, there's on the one hand, you know, they it's not what the Republicans wanted to have any continuation of this. He was about to be confirmed in their view. And, and the this, Democrats wanted to prolong and it because they were trying it. to gin up opposition right. so they could figure out right. a way to block him. It was all right. political. It was all political. So on both sides. On both sides and in order to sort of as a concession to those who were calling for more they say, okay, let's investigate him. But, you know, I remember Kellyanne Conway going on the air and saying, let's not make this a fishing expedition. And so you can't make it open-ended necessarily in their view, or this can go on forever. And they certainly wanted him on the court by the time the court resumed. And they wanted him on, on the court before the midterm elections. Let's not forget what an impact this made on these candidates who were running for, for re-election. So, I mean, I, and I think that also on the same time, the Democrats and those who were invested in this process of the FBI investigation were completely completely felt like it was rigged from the start, where you well, know, you, you it was directed this, by Trump. You've got this great scene where Chris Coons, the yes, senator from Delaware, is on the phone with Don McGahn, the White House counsel, and he says, uh, you know, let me see the rule book. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do it by the book. We'll do it by then, the book. Well, let me Coons see the, says, well, what's the book? Well, what, where, right. Where's the memo? Yeah. And, and um, uh, McGahn says there is no book. There yeah, is no there book. Is and that kind of made me wonder. So, that, so the precedent here is the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings, which everyone knows didn't go all that well. Yeah, what a precedent. So in your reporting, so there really is no, I mean, they just make it up as they go along. I mean, the White House is the client, I guess. So, so the succession of events that we write about here is you have Coons and Jeff Flake kind of coming up with this bipartisan compromise with the help of uh, Senators Collins and Murkowski that they're going to say, OK, let's pause the vote. We want to mm -hmm. extend it, the background investigation. We'll give it a week. We'll make it somewhat prescribed. So there's an agreement around that. And together, those four kind of brainstorm how many witnesses, witnesses should be interviewed. And, you know, one, one of those people told me it was going to be 50 people. Another said double digits, maybe not as high as 50. But in any case, yeah. a reasonable number of people. And then the Republicans, without Chris Coons, go to Mitch McConnell and say, all right, here's what we're thinking. And from there, the process kind of takes off with Don McGahn in the White House. And, and as you guys know, the White House is the client here. So the White House is sort of driving the process and, and giving parameters to the FBI. But what happens after that is kind of surreal in the sense that you have these lawyers for these accusers trying desperately to reach the FBI to give them suggestions. Um, I mean, there's a moment in our book where the lawyers for Blasey Ford are like trying to email Chris Ray and the emails bouncing back and they're calling He's the, the FBI 24-hour line <laughs> saying, who can we talk to about yeah. this? And I think ultimately they get to Dana Bente. But the general counsel. Right. The, the letters are received, but for the most part, those letters and also the incoming calls that the FBI gets from well, the reality classmates is are the not FBI handled. Like the last thing the FBI wanted to be was in the middle of this. Sure. Right. You know? Can we uh, let's go back to the Deborah Ramirez story, because that was what you Mm -hmm. concentrated on, focused on in the, in the piece on Sunday. And you wrote at least seven people, including Ms. Ramirez's mother, heard about the Yale incident long before Mr. Kavanaugh was a federal judge. 
In the book on page 262, you wrote at least five people have a strong recollection of hearing about the alleged incident. Right. So how do we get from five to seven? We get from five to seven because in the epilogue we mentioned that there were two additional classmates who remember hearing something happen to Debbie. It just with less detail. And so um, right. we include them there. But here's the, if we just go through those seven people, mm -hmm. um, the way you phrased it, it sounded like it was significant because it was before Kavanaugh was a federal judge. So then the, the implication being that people had no reason to make up a story about Brett Kavanaugh. That's right. But when I go through the book looking for what these five or seven people told you, it's not clear how many of them heard a story about Brett Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, because I want this People have, I think, misread what you wrote. Jennifer Rubin in the Post the other day said you had uncovered seven witnesses who corroborated, mm, yeah, a lot of um, been, yeah. uh, corroborated Ramirez's account. Just to be clear, you have no witnesses who corroborated her That's account. That's right. Right. That's right. So these are contemporaneous. People heard about it contemporaneously or shortly thereafter. And well, how many well, of them heard about it contemporaneously from Deborah Ramirez? Deborah Ramirez does not remember telling anyone directly. And she does told anybody, her mother. Does anybody, except her mother. Something except happened. her mother. Yeah. Something does happened. Does anybody remember hearing it from Deborah Ramirez? Uh, no. So nobody in the room and nobody who heard it from Deborah to be, Ramirez. To be, to me, let me right. point out, there's somebody who recalls Oh, wait, hearing. I'm sorry. One of them is did hear it from Debbie after uh, they graduated from Yale, and she attested to as much in an affidavit. And what did she remember hearing? And she remembered Debbie telling her about this incident in full. And involving Debbie, yes. Mentioning Brett Kavanaugh? Yes. Who's that? Some, Who's the witness? Well, she, she would not, her name was blacked out in the affidavit, and she would not right. speak to and us. Right, and she was not interviewed by the other. And she was Somebody never interviewed. In fact, she never came up in any of the but, news but accounts at, least at the time. some of these people, I think you'll acknowledge, did not hear anything about Brett Kavanaugh, according to what That's you have That's not the first the two did. Yeah, um, and somebody no, also some yelled down people. the hall. Oh, Brett has right. just done yeah. this to Debbie Ramirez yes. that night. So, there is a source who says that. Well, I'll get to that. I think Keith Appold and his story is is worth digging into. But at least some of what you've reported, the mother did not hear that Brett Kavanaugh did this. No, but to her. she, right. but Debbie was so upset she thought Debbie had been raped and asked if she right. wanted Debbie to go to the Yale authorities. So, That's I how mean, bad it seemed. Would you admit, but I mean, that, are, are you parsing? You know, whether or not I mean. The, no, whether the, the you victims, actually have any corroboration. I mean, here. the, the by, question by of the what corroboration, of corroboration is is that's a question for our time. Given these right. Me Too stories, of which I have done several for the Times, right. and what you are, you you generally don't have a witness in the room of sexual assault or sexual misconduct. That's the nature of these right. um, events as it is. Okay, and women also don't often don't tell anyone about them, and there are, we can go into the reasons for that. There's a lot of shame and self blaming that goes on. So right. what we have done in terms of our time standards is you try to find people people who had heard about it at the time or shortly thereafter who can to attest to as much. Yeah, and this is something that Issachar has done for you know, yes. much of his career. Right. With, I mean, part of this is building the case for Debbie Ramirez's credibility. That's exactly right. 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 It's not, not every one of these cases. So is, when her name first surfaced, two of your Times colleagues wrote in a story on September 23rd um, that the Times had interviewed several dozen people in an attempt to corroborate her story and confide in no one with firsthand knowledge. Ms. Ramirez herself contacted former Yale classmates asking if they recalled the incident and told some of them that she could not be certain Kavanaugh was the one who exposed himself. Those were lines that, when a lot of us read it, said, whoa, if the accuser here is not certain that Brett Kavanaugh was her perpetrator, doesn't that raise big questions about her account from 35 years later? Yes. I mean, I think that this was I was one of the people on that story at the time and we were kind of neck and neck with the New Yorker on it. I mean, they had Deborah Ramirez herself. We did right. not. She chose to speak only to them. And we were trying to put in real time all of this together to see, you know, does this add up to an account that we can put in the paper at that time? And we felt we weren't there yet. Over the last 10 months, you know, it's very different in terms of, of being able to sort of amass a certain critical mass of people who we feel attest to her credibility and to the events that occurred. I think it's also important that, you know, that, you know, Deborah's kind of 
call the, this idea of her calling around as if she were kind of on right. sort of trying to get people to remember. Yeah. I mean, what she remembers is she remembers this penis, if we can say this, in in her yes. face, and she remembers. This then, is all about penises. On the show. <laughs> she remembers yeah, looking right. up and seeing Brett laughing and pulling up his pants. So I think connecting the penis to Brett was a process that she, you know, went through. Right. Um, and to the, and and then she only called a couple of people to say, you know, do you remember me telling you about this at the time? And, and they all said no. And they don't. And they don't. Um, so she was trying right. to backstop her story, but not to construct her story. And I think that's an important right. distinction. The, 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 the most, it seems to me like at least some of those people who you mentioned, like Chad Luddington and James Roach, vaguely remember hearing about something to Ramirez during freshman year that's not corroboration that Brett Kavanaugh was the perpetrator. Here, no. Correct? No. So, but the idea that something happened to Deborah Ramirez that was like a story that was making the rounds that, frankly, even beyond these seven people who we know by name, when we started reporting this, you know, this was immediately as Brett was nominated, was making the rounds of the Senate. Why? Because Yaleys were talking to each other. You know, how right. many, uh, you know. I'm just trying to separate a. A, a corroborated account from a rumor. Right, but then and, it also and, depends on I mean, how you define you corroboration. Had you heard at Yale at the time? Had you heard anything about I this? wasn't, I mean, I really wasn't in that world. Okay. The strongest corroborator, it seems to me, is this guy Kenneth Apple. That's right. Right, mm -hmm. because he says he heard about Immediately it within after. a day or two. Mm -hmm. Who did he hear it from? He heard it from two people in the in in the dorm entryway, um, and one was telling, hearing the story for the second time as the f one, the other person told it. Do you remember who, did you who he heard it from? He does not yeah. remember who he heard it from. So you didn't talk to whoever it was that told him. No, Kenneth has does not remember who right. told him. And then, and then one of your other corroborators is Michael Whetstone, who heard it from Ken Appled. Right. So we're now third hand. I mean, but that's I, I mean know, that's the idea of like how that, is this different from a rumor? Because you know it's it because got, he didn't he didn't see it the, he didn't see it he heard it from somebody he doesn't even remember okay but the and other then he witness tells it to Mike, somebody else the, and you cite the other person as corroborating the actual account that Apple never saw okay but the other person who heard about it contemporaneously remembers a woman crying as she recounted it in a dorm in in the dorm like the following day of what happened okay? and remembers it was Kavanaugh that's right but you haven't spoken to that person. No. All right. Let me ask you about some of the characters in this story, main characters in this story, who you attempted to talk to and were not able to, because I'm mm -hmm. just curious about that. Main one being Kavanaugh himself, Justice Kavanaugh now. And you say in the book that it sounds like you were negotiating to, uh, to talk to him, but you couldn't come, agree on terms. I was fascinated that he would consider having being interviewed for this book. So can you tell us a little bit about that negotiation? Um, we uh, kept the justice just apprised of what we were working on throughout, asked him to consider meeting with us very early on. It didn't seem to be something he was seriously considering until kind of late in the process. We asked several intermediaries to talk to him about it, and they did, and we were made to understand that he was thinking about it. In the end of the day, uh, we were planning to meet, but the plans broke down over ground rules. What were the ground rule. What was the dispute over the ground rules? The dispute was that he wanted us to say in the book that he had declined to be interviewed. And we were not comfortable doing that if we were <laughs> going to do any sort of an interview. Um, so in other words, he would talk to you off the record or on background, but then he asked you to say that he declined to be interviewed. That's right. Be that's reporting right. something that was not Could truthful. you have come back with he declined to be interviewed on the record? Yes, we, we proposed mm -hmm. any number of yeah. things. He, he talked to us, but only about these things. He declined to talk about these things. We even discussed the idea of just not saying anything at all. I mean, you've noticed other points in this interview. We've said, gee, we can't talk about our sources. If they're on the record in the book, they're on the record in the book. But otherwise, we can't right. name our sources. Theoretically, he could have been sort of part of that pool. But he is the main character of the book. The book is about him, and it just felt like we couldn't honestly, for our readers' sake, sit down with him and have any sort of a substantive discussion other than a maybe, hello, nice to meet you, uh, let's just chat and get to know each other for a minute here. I mean, anything beyond that that dealt with the guts of the issues in the book really had to be acknowledged as an interview, or if not, just left alone, because you can't mislead people about it. And then the other character who we talked about before is Mark Judge, uh, mm -hmm. who potentially 
very important person in this story because he would have witnessed and, in a sense, been part of the uh, right. the assault. You talked to him briefly, it sounded I did. like. Tell us about that. <laughs> so uh, Mark Judge was a tough guy to track down. I mean, I had his coordinates, his phone number and email, and, you know, had been told to sort of buzz off a number of times. I felt it was really important to try to meet with him and, you know, make a real effort to get his point of view. So to my knowledge, you know, he's not staying in his own home these days, or at least wasn't when I was working on this aspect of the reporting. He was kind of staying with a family friend at one point, staying with his sister at one point. So he was kind of moving around. And, you know, one evening I knocked on the door of the home where I had heard he was staying and um, another person came to the door and kind of turned me away. But I left a business card and said I'd really like to talk to Mark. And shortly thereafter, he called me. We had a brief conversation. And which he, you can imagine he was like not thrilled to be talking with me and, and, you know, more or less said, look, I really don't remember this and I, I don't want to talk about this. And there, there were a couple of conversations like that. So uh, not a lot to report in terms of that. Intrepid reporting, but unfortunately mm-hmm. did not lead to much. <laughs> you know, I mean, here's the thing. We really wanted to try to finish the inquiry that was not fully done right. for the edification of our readers and and for ourselves. And um, we wanted to knock on every door, if you will. And so that was important in that respect. The Leland interview was important. Based on, but, but sorry, just to finish one sure, quick thought, yeah. doesn't mean we're going to get information from right, everybody, sure, right? Or perfect sure. answers from right. everybody. And, right. and, and all we've tried to be transparent in the book about sort of who we've talked to, what efforts we've made, what was inconclusive, where there was sort of evidence of one thing, where there was countervailing evidence of another thing. I mean, we really want people to be able to consume this and decide like what they think. We are not trying to lead a horse to water, but we did think that in the end of it, in the very end, it was appropriate to say, look, we've been in the thick of this for 10 months. Here's what we got. Here are our deductions. Take them or leave them, though. I mean, it's not for us to tell you what to think. And I think also with sexual assault allegations, I mean, you can appreciate that this is difficult territory in terms of, you know, part of what we're talking about in terms of corroboration is, do they have a motivation for doing this? You know, trying to understand are these like are these women politically motivated? For example, is there an apparatus right. behind them that's driving this? Do they have an axe to grind? I mean, all of the things you would Warning. you know as a journalist. Right. But you know, when someone's you know alleging these things, how do you pursue that when we're talking about often it's like two people in a room? What did you make of the tape that recently surfaced of Deborah Katz, the lawyer for? One of the lawyers for Christine Blasey Ford say she was in part motivated by her fears that Brett Kavanaugh would take a scalpel to Roe versus Wade. Let me speak to that. I, I mean, I immediately saw that and thought I have a hard time thinking that Christine Blasey Ford would want people to perceive that or would own up to that. And I called her representative and said, what, what is this? You know, what do you yeah. make? Is this true? And I was told, no, this is not Christine's motivation, which has been consistent with my reporting. Christine had this sense of civic duty. She really thought that the decision makers should know about this memory that she had. She wrestled with whether to do it, not because she didn't think it was valuable information to impart, but because of all the risks and all the issues. She is a Democrat. She sent a small check to Bernie Sanders at one point. She does not probably share Kavanaugh's ideology. But the idea that she was trying to do something for the benefit of Roe versus Wade is is not her lawyer said. I understand, but but I I think look, it's been a year since those proceedings. Her lawyer is somewhat of a political activist herself, and I, 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 she clearly said she was speaking for Ford. But I, from what I'm told, that is not Ford's position. Actually, you know what? Something that really jumped out at me in your reporting, which is that when she was wrestling with whether to come forward, she considers the idea of going directly to Kavanaugh himself and discussing it privately. Right. I mean, that... I mean, I have to say, actually, Deborah Ramirez similarly said if he had just apologized, this would have gone away. But, I mean, it does... There's a naivete to that. A naivete or raises well, it, it, even, it even has the. It even has sort she of viewed the conduct because if she really thought this guy destroyed her life and gave her these, you know, fears that live with her to this day, it's hard to imagine that she would want to then 
talk to him no, in unless there's an impulse to confront your accuser. Yes, I mean, and He's I want to let I want to let know. Kate address that in terms of okay. Christine Blasey Ford, but I also want to say that I happen to have a friend who you know was raped in college, and she wrote about it without naming him, and he called her, and said, "I'm so sorry," and it was closure. I mean, I think for women, you know, just some acknowledgement of the experience is more potent than we may imagine, and it may have actually gone a long way, particularly in a case like Deborah Ramirez of saying, you know, this was, you know, behavior. I'm, I'm really sorry that I did that. But go ahead, Kate, you were going to say. No, I, to me, that was actually one of the single most interesting disclosures in the book uh, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one is, to your point, why would she want to make that phone call? By the way, she told me when I sort of asked her further about this that she doesn't really like the phone. She would have messaged him, perhaps. And I, I was just thinking, gosh, how would that have gone over? I mean, would the message have even gotten through? And if so, what would Judge Kavanaugh at the time have said? And you know, you can kind of look at it a couple of ways. I mean, on the one hand, perhaps it's a kind of a well-intentioned, maybe even sort of a cathartic attempt, you know, to like talk things out and get some closure for her. On the other hand, it's it's naive and kind of unrealistic, I think, to think that a phone call like that would have headed things off. And there, there's almost a way to read it, too, that it, there's sort of an implicit threat in there. Like, if you don't back away, I'm going to go public. Mm-hmm. Our colleagues, just as a quick aside, who wrote the book, she said, they talk about this and they go a step further than we do. They say that her intention was for him to withdraw with this phone call scenario. She would want him to either withdraw or, you know, uh, go forward with the knowledge that she was going to go public with it. And she had this notion of, like, let's not do this to both of our families. I did not hear that in my interviews with her. I I did not know that that was her mentality. I thought it was a scenario where, gee, let me talk this through with him, see where it goes. But the she said account definitely sounds like an implicit threat. Yeah. Um, So uh, my closing question actually kind of relates back to what you were asking before about Roe versus Wade. I know this is not a... uh, you know, examination of, of Brett Kavanaugh's jurisprudence, but you are close observers of Kavanaugh now and probably for the rest of his uh, term on the Supreme Court. Is there anything either in his conduct or in his judicial decisions or how he conducts himself that in any way you think has been influenced by this experience that he's had? I mean, how do you look at uh, Justice Kavanaugh now in his public persona. So people who know him have made the comment to us that Clarence Thomas was somewhat radicalized by his experience with Anita Hill and to the degree that he was a strong conservative, he doubled down on that, perhaps because of this experience that just made him want to dig in. Of course, we'll never know if that's the cause or that's just the direction he was going regardless. But the contrast is with Justice Kavanaugh, there seems to be this notion that if anything, this very difficult experience has made him a little bit more conscious of his legacy, desirous of being even more thoughtful than he normally would be. And this is a a, a jurist who's known for thoughtfulness, who's known for pragmatism, um, and less kind of predictably ideological. And I don't want to get too long-winded, but, you know, if you look at the first term, as I'm sure you guys have, it's been a mix. I mean, he defended this Louisiana regulation that would have had the effect of closing all but one of Louisiana's abortion clinics. He, on the other hand, uh, wrote the majority opinion in Flowers versus Mississippi, Mm -hmm. which uh, dealt with issues of race and a white DA trying a uh, black defendant six times with juries that were either all white or predominantly white. And essentially, the case dealt with the composition of the jury and whether the composition on the DA's part was racially motivated. And Justice Kavanaugh essentially found that it was. And so, you, you actually have an interesting anecdote in your book. I think he's driving somewhere with an mm-hmm. African-American friend. And they oh, have... Robin yeah. Is that your that. reporting? Yeah. Um, they talk about Jim Crow and... Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think actually looking even back at his 12 years of jurisprudence before going on the court when he was on the district court, it was just a much more nuanced record where, you know, he's much more in the vein of a of a Roberts than he is a Scalia. And I think that's been lost in this conversation as well. Um, I think he's you know, we, we even had our colleague Adam Liftak say that he was arguably the next swing justice. That may be the case. I Did mean, any of the uh, judges on the D.C. Circuit who he served with for a long time talk to you? They didn't. But, you know, one of the things that we did find when we talked to people who had argued, we, yeah. we you quote people who had argued before litigants. him, litigants. Yeah. And the fact that he had voted with Merrick Garland, 
who was almost like 93, 93 percent of the time. Of the time. Yeah. Well, and, and he votes yeah. with the chief justice 91 percent of right. the time in the yeah. first term. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I think most people don't know. I'm that. sorry, the majority 91 percent of the time, but very, very often right. with Justice right. Chief Justice Roberts. So I just sort of final question here. I mean, you've written, uh, you know, you've done a lot of reporting. It's a well-reported, nuanced book. And yet, you know, it's caused this political ruckus in Washington with people demanding impeachment, five presidential candidates. And six, actually. Without <laughs> six, okay, sorry. Who's counting? Right? Um, and I'm just saying, like, given where you ended up in the sort of nuanced, carefully calibrated way you ended up, and you see this kind of political outcry based on your reporting or, you know, the account in the Times which you acknowledge was flawed, but in any case, how do you feel about that? The fact that people are taking your reporting and trying to score political points. Kamala Harris today wrote a letter to Nadler demanding the beginning of an impeachment inquiry, which is not where you folks are. Both of you, react yeah, to how I mean, you have It's a fascinating question for us, and, and we definitely have you know, been grappling with it, for sure. And, and there was a sense going into this, you know, that like nuance doesn't make headlines, you know, that, you know, people were going to pull stuff out um, to this degree. I don't think we could have anticipated. But I think that it also kind of reinforces the whole point of the book in the first place, the rationale for it and what we were trying to achieve in it, which t- was to talk about how, particularly in this age of Trump, when partisanship is so intense, that people, you know, saw what they wanted to see before, you know, learning anything of any of the facts or even didn't even make much of an effort to pay attention to the facts. They kind of just aligned um, and sort of calcified their positions early on that, you know, this is an age in which it's not really about fact finding. It's not really about trying to understand a different point of view and maybe even change a mind. You know, it, it's really just about kind of doubling down and digging in and and kind of using information to sort of serve an, an agenda. You know, I, I really feel like, you know, an, an agenda has been kind of projected onto us. We certainly didn't start out with one and we didn't end with one. I mean, I find it kind of dismaying. I mean, obviously, we're gratified that people are reading our work in The Times or whatever of the book they've read. Uh, we, we appreciate that. But um, it's dismaying to see the rush to judgment. And um, I just feel like there is an absence of truly introspective thinking and analysis here. And for me, you know, one of the most interesting people I met as a source on the book was this guy, Joe Conahan. He was in Georgetown Prep, class of 1983, which was Kavanaugh's class. He would tell you he drank and sort of, you know, caroused with all the guys and and said uh, rude things about women and did all that stuff himself. And he thinks it was wrong in retrospect. And he signed a petition of support for Christine Blasey Ford back last year that was put together by some Georgetown Prep alums. At the same time, he is a huge fan of Donald Trump and a huge fan of Brett Kavanaugh. His only caveat to that is he would have preferred to see Amy Coney Barrett on the court. But (laughs) ideologically, politically, he backs both of them. And and he is um, a very spiritual person and a Christian. And he just feels that there's a lack of grace and a lack of communication, and I find that extremely rare and refreshing. So clearly he's a nuanced guy. (laughs) Right. I I would say, my last word is, I think everybody should read this book because it's very well told. It's a good narrative and well reported, and uh, that's how you uh, get the nuance, by actually reading the damn book. (laughs) Thank you. We (laughs) agree, guys. As Bernie Sanders might say. (laughs) Robin, Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks to New York Times reporters Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.